Welcome to Seemingly Ordinary. This is a podcast where I interview people who on the surface might appear to be ordinary, but underneath the surface, I think they have amazing things going on. I'm very excited today because I'm going to be interviewing Father Merle Kolash, who I've known for, gosh, I don't know, maybe 40 years or so. And Father, are you 88 or are you 89? I'll be eight, I'll be uh, ninety if I get that old <laughs> in July. So okay. I guess I'm eighty nine now. You're eighty nine and, and a half. Looking ahead. Yeah, eighty nine and a half and looking ahead. You are the um, well, I mean this as a compliment. The oldest person I've interviewed my dad, who I think is about a year younger than you. And uh, I just always think whenever I meet somebody your age, I just think, well, what were they doing when they were a kid? You know, what were they doing when they were a teenager in their 20s and their 30s and their 40s? I just think, well, there's so much, you know, we don't know. We look at people and maybe we assume things or maybe we just don't even think anything at all. And anyway, I'm just going to be very excited because we're going to talk about your, your childhood and things like that. Um, so... Um, but if you don't mind, actually, I'd like to ask you just one or two questions about being a priest. First, Fire on, Tim. Okay. We can handle some of that. Okay. <laughs> and, and, Father, I'm going to do my best to not interrupt, too, as well. So, But um, when did you first get the call to be a priest? Well, I'm the fourth, final of the uh, last child of my parents. Um, all my siblings are older than I am, obviously. And we lived on a farm. First farm I was born on, it's in Kasuth County, Iowa. I was 18. I lived there till I was five years old with my parents. All my siblings were home with us, too. I remember we moved. I was born in 34. In 39, we moved about four miles to the farm home where we lived the rest of their lives. My parents lived till, there till they retired. So they moved there in 39. So my grandfather, my mother's father, was dying of cancer. So we went out to, uh, to live there after he died. <laughs> it got to be toward evening. And I'm reaching for my mother's skirt. Okay. And I'm saying, Ma, let's go home. <laughs> <laughs> Not doing, of course, this is our home. You're stuck here now. Yeah. Okay. I mean, was it a nice new place, or was it a step down, or what was it? Oh, the Isley Farm. It was a step up, really. Okay. Maybe sideways. We, my father was uh, the second oldest of 13 children. Oh. And so... Wow. He was at home farming, and he said to himself one day, you know, if I don't take a break and go and do something else, I'll be here farming for the rest of my life with these kids. Okay, so what does he, what's he want to do instead? Or what can well, he... he wanted to farm, but he didn't want to be, uh, like, working for somebody. He wanted to rent his own farm. Oh. You know, oh. it's kind of a step up. What do you do? Okay, are you saying he was a hired... place. He was a hired man before. Well, it was a family farm, yeah. He was he was the oldest, second oldest, so that meant he had to do a lot of the work. Oh, his okay. oldest brother, the firstborn, was a victim of uh, asthma and hay fever, so he couldn't farm like 
people had to back in those days when it was horses. A lot of manual labor and hard work. Different from pushing a pencil and That's watching right. the TVs. That's right. That's trying right. Trying to beat the markets like we try to do now. <laughs> Are you trying to beat the market these days? Well, I decided it was a useless game, so I better do something else. Okay. Spend, my, your, spend my, your precious time doing it. My plan now is to give my money away. That's the only money we take to heaven anyway, says okay. the Lord. You reach the point where you just want to give it away. Yeah, I'm trying to do that. Okay, I'll give people your address and they can they can write you. <laughs> Just kidding. Okay, so your dad and your mom moved. You were five, and then he had his own land. And uh, well, they rented then. They rented my my mother's family's farm, where they raised their children. Okay. Being the last, um, I had the opportunity, obviously. Of deciding, do you want to farm or not? This okay. is all part of my vocation story, Tim. Okay, no, I'm, I, yeah, I wanted to kind of talk about your childhood and all that anyway, so this is exciting. Well, the question, obviously, that I face, even from being five years old, ten years old, what am I going to do with my life? So the obvious answer is I like farming, I like the outdoors, like the lifestyle, but I had terrible allergies, hay fever and asthma, okay. sinus problem my whole life. So uh, I said, no, I don't think I can do that. So then I went down the categories, what should I do then? What did I like to do? That's obviously the place we all must start. Okay. What do I like? I like school. I like church. I like religion. I like to pray as much as kids ever do, I suppose. But I said, well, I guess I'll be a priest. I was about five years old when I decided, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a priest. At five? Five years old. Okay, so, I mean, you just kind of went through a complex thought process, and but, but you're saying you had the five-year-old version of that where you were thinking, well, I could be a farmer, but I've got this bad asthma, so you kind of went through the rest of the list. Yeah. You're kind of a precocious child, Father. Thank you, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're real smarty pants is what I'm trying to say. No, just kidding. Um, that's amazing. So, I mean, just at the age of five, you kind of knew, I think I want to be a priest. I did. Okay. We went to a Catholic school, um, which no longer obviously is in existence because of shrinking populations. Yeah, because we're Farms in Iowa. get bigger, farm families get fewer. Yep. And instead of 13 children, my dad's family or even six in my mother's family, there were four in our family. Uh, now families are two or three. Right. Four would be a big family now. Yeah. Okay. So I enjoyed school very much. I had good relationships with my peers. We had sisters. Those are back in the days when we had sisters. Uh -huh. Presentation sisters from Dubuque, Iowa. We had Father Vite. <laughs> Father Vite was the pastor. He's there for 27 years. A wonderful man. Okay. The wisdom of Father Vite is 
well known throughout the diocese whenever we had retreats for the priests, they'd always talk about Father Veit. But <laughs> for confessions, when the priests would go to confessions on retreat, they'd always go to Father Fondo, Father Ed Fondo. Well, I vaguely remember him. I do, but I, I just things are not coming to mind. I can't remember if he was strict or if he was lenient or what he was. I just can't remember. He was all those things. <laughs> he was strict and lenient. He's a very personable guy. He's my mother's first cousin and also my mother's neighbor. My okay. mother uh, became a teacher although she only went to college a few years, took the exam and passed, and ended up teaching in the country school about you know, on the same mile, really, as where they lived. And Father Ed, as a young man, would go down and stoke up the furnace at <laughs> okay. Christmas time okay. in the winter time and feed the horses <laughs> for the kids who rode their horses to school. It was really a good, wonderful time that my mother remembered. Yeah, So very, I very wanted to be a priest, world. I thought. Well, I guess I'll be a priest. I like school. Well, okay, but you never really zigzagged because, okay, when I think of kids, like when they're five, one day maybe they want to be an astronaut, and then the next day they want to be a fireman, and then the day after that they want to be a doctor. Uh, then they want to be a professional athlete. Um, did you zigzag at all, like a kid? Or did you just uh, I know kinda... that's typical, but obviously, as I review my own life, uh, I don't think that was the case. I, I like school. I like to lead people, if that's the right word. I like to be um, associated in an atmosphere of learning and I just like what I what I I like to learn. I like to study, so I like school. And I thought, well, I'll be a priest then. Okay. Well, what's the best part about being a priest? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the uh, the love of people. Okay. I remember in 1979, I went down to Des Moines. The Holy Father came. That's when he came to the, what was the name of that place that Iowa Farmer invited him to come um, outside of Des Moines. They went to Living History Farms. Okay, yeah, yeah, Living History Farms with the Amish. I don't know if it's with the Amish, but it's, it's uh, you know, it's kind of an antique. It's kind of historical yeah. place, not a place where he'd visit. Anyway, this farmer in the neighborhood, a really rural parish, invited the Holy Father to come when he came to um, St. John Paul II. Invited him to come to Iowa, <laughs> rural Iowa, if that's not redundant. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so invited him to come, and he came. And I'm with this group of thousands of people living history farm Des Moines, October 4th, 1979, and all the people are there. It's a beautiful, sunshiny morning, crisp air of October. And the people are all looking for God. They're looking for Jesus. And I laughed. I said, 
All they're going to get is a Polish Pope. <laughs> That's going to be their God. Oh, it's a wonderful day. Yeah. Um, <laughs> did he give a good talk? Oh, he gave a brief talk, but sure, he's authentic and personable. Yeah, I mean, everybody really kind of loved John Paul II, I think. Yeah, he kind of greased the wheel, didn't he? Yeah, I just, I don't know, is this controversial for me to say? I feel like he was the best pope in the last 1,000 years. That may be a bit controversial. <laughs> Do you have somebody from 1530 that you like more? No, I like Benedict XVI. I've been reading his books lately. Oh, okay. And, okay. Uh, it's just amazing, his wisdom, the depth, and the insights, and the experiences he's had. The writing that he's done is... Uh, he's a good writer. birth by the things that he read. I mean, it's just... It's a retreat. I live alone, and so that's my retreat material. I sit in my chair where I am now and think about all the wonderful gifts that God gives people. Uh-huh. God has pets, you know? Yes. And uh, Do you feel like you're God's pet? Yeah. And your family are God's pets, too. I can see that. That's true. I'm I'm lucky. I have two very good parents and a good brother and a good sister. Yeah. I'm lucky. I'm blessed. People are free. I'd never contest that truth. But at the same time, God has his pets. And some people, he just knocks them off with his love and his... And they seem to know it, and then they just, uh, could I say they swoon? Or they, yeah, maybe. They let themselves be seduced by this wonderful gift of God's presence and love. So I thought, well, that's what, that's what I want to be. That's what I want to do with my life. Be invaded by God, to be overcome by God's love and goodness I like your attitude because when I think of religion in two very broad terms, like super, super broad, I think about the rules, you know, like, say, the Ten Commandments, for example. And then I also think about the relationship or the love. And they're both important. But, I mean, the relationship and the love just is the best, I think. You know, you just have, I guess if you have parents, you know that your parents love you even when you mess up the rules, like when you break the rules, you know, if you get pulled over for speeding because you were going like 100 miles an hour in a 20 mile an hour zone yeah. or whatever, you know, you know that your parents still love you, even if you messed up on yeah. the rules. So I, I like your attitude of just being sort of like knocked over by that incredible love. I used to give a vocation, I did vocation work a lot of my priestly life. So, um, as a result of that, I had opportunity to give retreats or give days of recollection and study. And one of the things that seems apropos here is uh, you used to talk about, well, there are only three questions in life, really. There are okay. only three basic questions. Oh, what are they? The first one is, who am I? Okay. Who am I? Okay. Who am I? 
if we can get into that, that would be a long discussion. Who am I? Come to the grips with that essential issue. And the second question is, who is Jesus? Okay. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Is Jesus in my life? Is he my brother, my savior, my savior? Is he the one who suffered and died for me? Is he the one who um, invades my life and overcomes with his uh, irresistible love and care for me? Is he the one who really is my savior? So that all these are meditations. Who am I? Meditation. Second meditation, who is Jesus? And the third one is, what about the church? Okay. Okay. What about the church? Okay. How does that fit in with this? So those three um, questions are essential for each person to keep answering. And as we mature and get older, our answers become more refined. They become richer. And... uh, more formative in okay. our life. Okay. It's a wonderful gift. It's true. Just come back to that. I, I worry sometimes, though, that in certain areas, I go downhill. You know, like you hit a certain age, you peak, and then you're on the other side of the mountain, you know, that there's a little bit of a slide. So if I had a sharp answer on, answer on some of those questions, maybe 10 years ago, maybe the answer's not as sharp anymore. Maybe it needs to get sharpened again. Yeah, we keep changing, don't we? Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's so, like a roller coaster up and down, or better yet, it's like um, being in the church, being in the church, uh, and when the when the church the church is a ship, and when the storms come, the wind flo- blows, and the water is swirling around, dangerous. Uh, the first first answer is first uh, thing we have to remind ourselves is, is stay in the boat. <laughs> stay in the boat. <laughs> don't fall out of the boat. Yeah, don't abandon. Stay in there. Okay. Okay. So, parents. Did you have one strict parent and one lenient parent, or I don't know, did you have one of one kind and one of the other kind? Do you know what I'm saying? I do. Like maybe one's logical and one's emotional, or one makes decisions quickly and the other one is indecisive. What were your parents like? Um, They were wonderful people. Uh, that's the secret of success in life, you know. Choose your have parents. Good parents. <laughs> choose your parents carefully. Yeah, choose your parents well. And uh, you know, for all the people be who patient. believe in reincarnation, they would say, "Well, of course." Be patient. My father is a very kind and loving man, who is very um, almost adventuresome for an Iowa farmer. Okay. Hard worker, thorough. Church goer, prayer. Are you German? German background? Yeah, German and Polish and French a little bit. Oh, well, you're everything then. Because <laughs> I was going to try to stereotype you as a methodical German or something, but I don't think I can do that now. Well, not really 
that methodical, but I understand your your point there, and I agree with it. Germans are very precise. <laughs> right. We invade France on a timetable. My priest friend from Germany used to tell a story about the camel. I say, what about the camel? He said, well, he says you have to decide who's writing the book about the camel. <laughs> if the camel's written about by an American author, the name of the book is How to Make Money with Camels. <laughs> <laughs> and if the author is from France, the book would be titled The Love Life for the Camel. <laughs> And if it'd be written by an Englishman, it would the book would be the proper laws and restrictions for bringing up a camel. <laughs> <laughs> oh my! That's pretty good. That's isn't pretty good. that wonderful? Yeah. Insights that we have. Yeah. Okay. So, how about your mom then? What was your mom like? My mother was. Um, She's a very loving person, uh, struggling. She was a fusser. I don't mean that in pejorative sense at all. Uh, but she was fussed about things and worried about things. Okay. So like we do, and most of them, we don't have any influence over the outcome anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but we're still fussing around. Yeah. Okay, so she'd brat and worry. She was the oldest of six children. Okay. And so she was... Oh. Uh, she's a wonderful mother. She's a prayer. Uh, there's a... Her name was Isley, E-I-S-E-L-E. -E. Okay. And uh, there's a streak in the Isley family that's very religious and also very creative. They're poets and artists. Her older brother was world beater in sports, baseball, and boxing. Wow. He was a cartoonist. He wrote short stories when I was teaching at Notre Dame High School in Cresco, Iowa. He did all that? He did all that. That was her brother? Okay. He died in 1959, I think it was. Oh, okay. And he died of cancer. Oh, no. It was terrible. Okay. Anyway, he wrote, a, he wrote short stories. That was his specialty. Although he did longer stories and poems too. But one of his short stories was in the anthology that I was using teaching junior religion in high school. Junior Whoa. English in high school. Okay, what was his name so we could look Albert him up? Albert Isley. Albert Isley. Albert Isley. Do you remember? New Earth, Minnesota. They had a, my grand, my mother's parents bought a farm in, in Blue Earth, Minnesota. And so Albert lived there and uh, farmed and wrote. He and his wife were both writers. Well, they're wonderful people. Wonderful background. And he was a boxer, too, on top of all that. Wonderful stories about him and the Isleys. Okay. Musician. He had his own band. Jeez. Okay. Well, the part that kind of amazes me, maybe it shouldn't, but it kind of does, is the fact that he was an artist but also a boxer. 
you know, because usually I don't know. You just you don't often think of those two things as going together, but maybe they go together, and I just don't know it. They went together in him anyway. Yeah. Okay. A cartoonist uh, in the family farm, the Isley farm. He lived there until he got old enough to move out, and then my mother moved in there. Our family moved in. And I remember on the barn, there was a caricature of a tough guy like you'd see at Joe Palooka. Oh, yeah, book. yeah, yeah. Did he draw that? Yeah, he drew all those Okay. Things. Did he go pretty far in boxing? No. He was, he was more of a thinker, creative person. Okay. He was a great athlete. That was my point. Okay. Along with uh, just, corn, he was a champion. Cor picked corn by hand, he oh, was a champion. That was a thing? They tried to get two loads a day, 50 bushel or more in the morning, come back, have lunch, 50 bushel in the afternoon. Oh, okay. So was... you'd have to get out early and stay late to do that, everything by hand. Who are they competing with on that? Well, they'd have contests sometimes, but just neighboring farmers, okay. relatives in the okay. vicinity, they'd have the well, You're kind contest. of an art artistic person yourself. I mean, you write. I'm and, grateful for that. And yeah. you sing, and it's fun. It's a really good talent to have. Yeah. Do you also draw? I did a lot of drawing. I went on an extended retreat one time for 140 days down in St. Louis. Whoa. And part of the therapy that we did there was to draw. Okay. So okay. some of my drawings would be coming from within, and others would be like looking out that window and seeing the arrangement of trees, mm. or from this side of the windows, looking at the chapel where we were. Okay. And sizing up the things. Oh, I like to drive in. Okay, okay. Um, for the artists out there, see, I don't know a lot about this, but did you work in any particular medium? Like, were you like a, a sketcher or a painter or um, charcoal? You know, was there a particular medium that you worked in? Or what did you do? I used uh, basically a variety of colors. I liked sometimes just to use a um, straight line, pencil kind of write, uh, drawings. But I tried to um, put in reality in a kind of um, a way that brought people in to experience their own depth of their being, depth of their soul and their experiences. So it was, it was a nice time for me to do that. Okay. Okay. Um, so I think we kind of talked about your parents uh, quite a bit. Uh, do you want to say anything about your older siblings? I'd say just a word about them. My oldest brother was, as I said before, uh, he did, he went to the military. Okay. I remember in 42, Mm. And maybe in, maybe after that, 44, was he toward in the, the war? end of the war. Okay. 
He was he in was the war. An MP stationed okay. in Italy. Okay. Okay. And came uh, back home then. And then he took a different variety of works, different jobs, and then finally, after my folks retired in 1957, he took over and lived on the family farm, and my parents moved to town where they lived in Woodamore. Did your brother marry? My brother married, had three children, one of whom is deceased now, and uh, he had a daughter who living in Omaha, and his youngest son, my nephew Michael, lives on the Isley Farm. So it's a century farm now. Oh, congrats. In the family for okay. that long. Although his name is Kolash, okay. he still has the Isley side to him, too. Okay. Did your brother come back from the war basically okay? He was okay. Yeah, he was okay. He was, he got, I remember that. He had a friend who was serious about her from uh, Emmitsburg, Dorothy, and he liked her a lot. And they were serious about their relationship. But then we all know the stories about the Dear John letters. Oh, no. That military people sometimes got from the yeah. girl they left back home. He got a Dear John letter. Okay. And that just broke his heart. I know it did, although... He and I never talked specifically about that. Okay. Did so he did he date sad. this girl for a long time? I don't know. Okay. See, he was born in 23, and I was born in 34, so oh. we didn't have much to share. Big 11-year gap. Yeah, he was older than I was. Did that gap get smaller as you guys got older? I suppose all of them do for all people, but it was difficult. He moved into the home where I had grown up, and then by that time I was going to college or else I was teaching and had my own place. So it's like I didn't have a home anymore except I would be with my parents. They had a nice home in Whittemont. And I had my room upstairs. But it was different. Okay. And, and it was fine. It was good. It was okay. Yeah, it's a way thing. That's life, you know. Yeah. Okay, so that was the oldest brother. And what was his first name? That was Raymond. Raymond. Okay, and then who was next? Then came my sister Alice. Okay. Alice was, uh, Ray was born 23, Alice born 25. Okay. And uh, her children, she had four boys, two of whom are deceased. Okay. Her children always say she was the best mother. They lived in Mason City, and they uh, had the Isley gene of being good athletes. Oh, nice. Okay. So they went to Newman in Mason City and were basketball. Baseball stars, football too. All right, so she did that, and then who was next? This was Lloyd, my brother Lloyd, was the most um, independent in the sense he was not. 
taken care of like I think the other two were in the sense that uh, he needed more support and financial assistance mm. to get on with his life. Okay. My brother, he was in the military too. He's in the Korean War. Okay. That's that my phone that we're going to ignore. Okay. All right. It'll stop pretty soon, I know. Well. Okay. So, um, my brother is most independent. He went to uh, Creighton University for a while. He's going to be a dentist. Then he decided, no, that's not for me. Then he ended up working for Ford in Des Moines first, and then from Des Moines he went to a suburb of Detroit, and then finally retired and uh, lived in Fort Myers, where uh, he died. I was with him when he died. What a wonderful experience. Blessing and wonderful. At that Grace point, you were a priest, moment. right? Pardon? You were a priest when you Yeah, okay. yeah. You guys get training in that, don't you? Like being with people when they are going to pass away? Yeah, the training is contingent, really. It's kind of a training that all people get. But the results of it are very much contingent upon the personality and introspective qualities of the person who's being trained. Mm -hmm. I had a love for people and a readiness to be present to them. I wasn't frightened by situations. I didn't like a lot of anger and frustration and never faced much of that, really. But I like to be with people in important moments okay. in their life. Like marriage and funerals and I guess anointing of the sick and maybe baptism. people, talking with people, exchanging things. So can, can I ask, I think you're very good with people, just my observation from knowing you for, Thank you, know, you. I, I hope to, I hope I am, yeah. I, I think that you are and just something I've always kind of wondered about priests in general is it's like, uh, do you guys get a lot of, um, I don't know if psychological counseling is the right word, because I just think, well, for example, married couples might come to you and, you know, they might go to confession or they just might talk to you and they might just ask you about their problems. And I just sort of think, well, after you talk with about 100 couples, you probably start to pick up on all kinds of patterns and then you can give people very good advice on the basis of maybe either your training or your just your own personality or gifts from the Holy Spirit or maybe just the fact that you've done this maybe a hundred times, two hundred times, three hundred times, and you just pick up on patterns and um, is that kind of what happens? Is this how priests sometimes become very good at giving people good advice? Yeah, I think it's like everybody. There, some have. Um kind of a predisposition and a openness to do, to relate to people in loving, mutually fulfilling ways. Okay. And that was a gift that I, I believe God gave me, so I'm grateful for that. Do you ever have to be stern with people? Oh, sure, we all have to, don't we? It's painful while we're going through it. And as we look at it, 
meditate, reflect upon it, theologically reflect upon it, then sometimes that's painful too. But it's life, isn't it? That's the way it is. We ask God to forgive us our weaknesses, our faults, and our mistakes, and to reinforce our good intentions and to make more fruitful our efforts to bring people into the light. Okay, okay. <laughs> Come into the light. What, what do you think the trick to dealing with people is? I mean, so far from you, I've heard, you know, just be open to people, listen to people, be present with people. That's kind of what I'm picking up so far. If somebody came to you and said, hey, I just want to get better at working with people, what would you say? I'd say pray more. <laughs> You've heard of uh, Carl Rogers? Yeah, yeah, the psychologist, yeah. Who Carl I'm, Rogers, is his theory, he's a good, he's a good psychologist. Good warm, therapist. positive regard. That was his slogan, warm, positive regard. You know, give everybody a hug. Yeah, his, Carl Rogers' theory would be the client, I think they call him clients, uh -huh. would come in and they'd talk about his life. And uh, Carl Rogers' approach would be, you already have the answers okay. to these problems. Okay. You know exactly mm. what to do. The skilled counselor would, by the wisdom underneath his questions, would enable you to realize okay. I have the answer to these problems. Okay. I have the way through this maze okay. <laughs> that so, we call our life. So isn't this just code for Carl Rogers doesn't have the answers, but he wants you to figure out the answers? <laughs> <laughs> you have the answers, Carl Rogers says, and the skillful therapist would, by his questions and by his... Uh, influence in the conversation would enable you to realize that. Okay. okay. And it, it's a big sunny, sunshiny day ending to that story. Okay. Okay. We're going to listen to people and we're going to draw the answers out of people. The answers are already present in the person. That's kind of what you're saying. That's right. Okay. Okay. Um, when did you actually become a priest? How old were you? I was. I wanted to be a priest when I was five. I know. Or six, and I became a priest when I was thirty. Okay, <laughs> but but okay. So then there's a gap in there. Well, after high school, I went to Lawrence College in Dubuque. Okay. For four years, and was an English major. Okay. With um, education and psychology for history for minors. Then I taught school for three years, and I remember the last year, I, I talked to my senior, I forget what his name was, good guy, and uh, wanted to give me a contract for the next school year. So that'd be um, 59 and 60. No. 59 and 60, and I said, I'll take a two-year contract at $3,500 a year for two years. The only reason I'd break it is I'd go to seminary. 
Okay. And he said, okay, I'll do that. So after the third year of teaching, first year of those two, I decided, yes, I will go to seminary, which I did. So I went back to Loris College for a year, pre-seminary, they called it then. And then I went to uh, theology, which is four years. The bishop, I got a letter from our bishop, Bishop Mueller, <laughs> Joseph Maximilian Mueller. Okay, sounds and, very German. He's very German. His father was a Lutheran minister. Oh, so okay. Joseph Maximilian Miller was coached and taught at home about Greek and Latin. Oh, all okay. All those things that Lutheran ministers would have in their pocket. So I went to Belgium then for four years. I was I got a letter from the bishop. He says, I'm sending you to Belgium, to Louvain, Belgium, Leuven in Dutch or Flemish. So from about 1960 to 64? For four years, that's okay. right, exactly. School years ending in 61, 62, 63, 64. Okay. Then it came back when it was ordained in 1964 with seven other guys okay. from around the diocese in Sioux City who were ordained at the cathedral. Gosh, we're coming up on this. May 30th. On your 60th anniversary. 60-90. Yeah. yeah. 90 years old, six years of yeah. priest. What a gift. Yeah, what two, a gift. Two-thirds of your life. What a gift. Yeah. Okay, but what was this four-year delay or three-year delay all about between college and the seminary? Well, there was, a, there was a formation residence. Pius X Hall is where the seminarians want, uh, lived together and did whatever they did, exercises, and spiritual formation and a lot of that other stuff. But I, I wasn't quite ready for that. I don't mm. know if I was rebellious or not, but I didn't quite want to do that. Okay. So I took what I thought was close to that to keep my, really, my options. desire. Okay. And my option for priesthood, keep it alive. Okay. By doing those other things. So I used to laugh and thought, yeah, I'm one of the few guys who got a Jesuit education in terms of years. Okay. But never became a Jesuit. <laughs> Okay, okay. So then once you became a priest, what was the big surprise? There, I mean, I, okay, it may seem like an odd question, but I just think anytime anybody does anything, like, oh, I don't know, they get married, or they take a job, or they join the army, or they move across the country, there's probably a big surprise. Something they just were not anticipating. What was the big surprise? I don't know if there was a really big surprise. It was a series of what I'd call second round, second rate, or more uh, not so basic, but some I was somehow surprised because um, I realized slowly, but see my first my first twenty five years I wasn't 
what we'd call in parish ministry. I wasn't like an associate and I wasn't a pastor. I was basically doing schoolwork. Okay. In 1964, when I was ordained, the, our diocese had 100,000 Catholics, maybe, mm. a little bit short of that. Okay. And 200 priests. Okay. So we had excess of priests. So what did they do? They worked in schools. Okay. All right. Now we have, in our same diocese, we have maybe like 85,000 Catholics, maybe not that many, because I was shrinking, our part of I was shrinking in population. Yeah. But we have like maybe 50 priests. Wow. So the so number we went of priests from 200 went, to 50. Right, 200 down to 50, but the population only went from 100,000 down to 85,000. Rounded out, yeah, yeah, that's about what it is. So we lost 15% of our population, but 75% of our priests. I think I learned as a young priest that uh, people didn't know how much they loved God. They didn't uh -huh. know. Okay. How badly they needed God. They were um, playing sports and doing their lessons. They were farming and playing ball. They're doing all kinds of things, but Christ was in the center of their life, and the church was the center of that form. Okay. But uh, we kind of took it for granted or didn't really reflect upon it and mm. come to grips with how blessed we are. Okay. We few people out here in the cornfields of Iowa. So the big the big surprise was really that you were just maybe a little surprised that people were not thinking about Christ more. Exactly. Okay. I was surprised that they didn't love Jesus as much as I thought I loved him. Or they they did, but they were taking it for granted. I'm surprised that they didn't get all fired up about being Catholic like yeah. I did. Well, that, yeah, I don't know what to make of that it's other than... It's a really disappointment. People, well, they get used to something. You know, like if you were married to the perfect person for 20 years, well, you just sort of assume this is normal and that everybody's got this kind of a good situation, you know? And you don't have to spend too much time being grateful for it, but you probably should be, you know, because if you're in this wonderful relationship, I guess it is easy to take these things for granted. Well, it's like people's health, you know? Everybody takes their health for granted until they don't have it anymore. Yeah. There's okay. a big transition in the... Catholic world, maybe in the whole world too, um, from uh, the church being like run, basically supported and contributed to by priests and sisters. Like my first seven years, I was in Sioux City Healing. I lived in a house, Marion Hall, with uh, eight or nine other priests. Okay. And they were about four or five convents around Sioux City where different communities of religious women live. And that's all gone now. Uh, what, what do you attribute that to? It's been replaced by people. Okay. 
lay people like your parents. Oh, right. Who, although they worked for community schools. Oh, you, your dad worked for Catholic school, didn't That's you? right. Did yeah. your mother, too? I don't think so. Well, my point is, it all changed from um, priests and sisters doing the heavy lifting right. to real people, if I may use that term. <laughs> and you got to give them money because they have to raise their children. They have to have, yeah, that's right. have homes and all that. A lot of religious So it was really a big can... transition, really a big transition. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of bishops, ours included, were left scrambling for money and looking for people mm. who weren't priests or sisters who would be a good, uh, who could make good contributions to their Catholic school. Well, and that's, that's hard to find because of all those factors you just mentioned, that if somebody's got a spouse they are taking care of, um, and then they have two, three, four, five kids, uh, and they have their own financial pressures, um, and then, you know, people who decide they're going to go work for the church, and then, of course, the church never really can pay all that much. You know, so you have to find people who are really dedicated, um, but who also are being pulled in multiple other directions. So then they just sort of do the best they can, assuming they're really dedicated, but they sort of have to squeeze the church in between the cracks. It's a very different world. It isn't a, what you and I would agree is a church-centered world anymore. No, no. You really have to struggle to make uh, the Lord in our Catholic faith, to make that the center of our life. Do you think that was easier when you were a kid? Like well, in a way, it was a lot easier. We were kind of sheltered. Uh -huh. You know, that's just the way everybody did it. But now it's uh, kind of like in your face, this is reality. So it's difficult for people now. They have to make a conscious daily decision about if they want to be if they want to base their faith their life on their faith mm. or just kind of hit and miss when we need God we go and get him right like we go our, our um, food supply is low so we got to go back to God and get something to eat but and then let it go again right right very um, different so I suppose if everybody's doing it, like let's say this is 1939, you know, and we're in the middle of the Great Depression and we're entering World War II just two years later, but the war is going, then, you know, the world looks pretty ugly. But if everybody around you is clinging on to their faith, you know, and that's part of your community and everybody's doing it and everybody has it, well, then it's, I don't know, for lack of a better words, it's like a tribal alliance, you know, and it, it, it is the way things are being done. You know, um, and then once that starts to slip away, then you have a different world. Life like you're saying life is a lot more complex now than it was even when I was growing up. Or your parents, uh, it was a lot easier then because we kind of knew where we fit in. Yes, and we were. You used the word tribal before. I kind of like that. We were kind of like this group of people right. who lived this way. Right. And now it's much more 
individualistic, personal kind of decisions. Well, the, the problem with that is, is that people get very atomized and they can feel very alone and people can feel isolated. And of course, if people are isolated, that can lead to people feeling kind of depressed, I think. Um, leading to a lot of suicide. Yeah. Leading I mean, to a lot of situations that are explosive, dangerous, unhealthy. Right. And uh, well, don't help us come back to God. Can, can I ask about complexity just for a second? Because I've been thinking about this because of some things other people have said. But, okay, so in 1945, we dropped two atomic bombs on Japan. And that forever changes the world. You know, I mean, it's in a way, it's kind of like the birth of the Cold War. Um, I'm not saying like the atomic bomb was the birth of the Cold War, but it's it's around that time period. Um, what were your thoughts when the atomic bomb went off? Because I, I realize you were probably only about 11 years old or so, but what were the people around you saying? Because I, I think maybe a possible reaction might have been, oh my gosh, you know, we've got this ridiculously powerful weapon you know we can just wipe out half of the city and just one bomb yeah it would just change everything i would think yeah it's a lot more simple than you know the japanese we call them the japs you Uh know Uh as soon as you get mad at somebody you have to change their name they're no longer japanese they're no longer germans now they're the japs and the huns right so we tend to put people more into categories to simplify it. And we think, well, it's a long ways away. And it doesn't really affect my mm. life, except if there's a war going on, prices are going to be better. Right. I'm going to get more for my corn. Oh. I'm going to get... Okay. I'm going to get more income in my family. So unhappily, that was a side effect that I think we all under underwent, although we didn't understand. At least I didn't reflect on that very much. It was more like white and black. Okay. Being yeah. Little, it's like they got it. We got them now, or something like that. Right. Right. I. I mean, I it's know not people. Not very healthy, really. I know people. Not very to... mature. Like I. We yeah. Look at it today. I, look, I. I know in nineteen. Nuance. Not very nuanced. 1945, people want to end the war, but I guess what I'm trying to ask is, did the atomic bomb complicate things for afterward? Yes, of course. It's a new age then. It's a new kind of life experience. And it uh, it made life and the whole process of rationality of um, one of the poets, I forget who it was, we have to get life in the corner and suck the very marrow from its bones. Okay, I mean, that sounds like Henry David Thoreau with Walden, you know, like he went out to the woods to live deeply. He wanted to, um, you know, just like absorb everything that he could about life. You know, wanted to suck the marrow out of the bones of life. I think it could be Thoreau, but I don't know. 
I think it's English, but I don't remember what it was. But I remember the line. <laughs> that's pretty good. Okay, yeah, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. Okay, when it comes to being a priest, um, are there groups that, uh, I, I guess, uh, is a difference? Like if you're tending to teenagers versus if you're tending to single adults versus if you're tending to engaged couples or maybe married couples, like, does it feel different for each type of group that you're tending to? Or do you just sort of roll with whatever you're doing? Or how does this work? Uh, what's always struck me is people have a need, a basic psychological in your gut need for a spiritual thrust in their life. We need Jesus. Yes. We need each other. We need the church. We need to be open and kind and responsive. We need to help people. We need to be positively disposed to the difficulties that people in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our country, in the world. Uh, difficulties people face. Basically, they're different, but on the bottom, they're coming out of the same thing. Everybody has that same need. We need to be loved, we need to be understood, we need to be appreciated, and we need to be uh, thanked, indirectly at least, Okay. for the contribution that we make okay. to life. So My whether or not somebody you're... Else's. So if you're helping a teenager who's 15 who's flunking most of her classes, or if you're helping an 85-year-old uh, with her issues that she might have, the core issue is people just want to feel loved and they want to feel appreciated? Yeah, we have a lot of needs, and we have to come to realize and act upon okay. um, the basic truth that God gave us each other. Uh, to face life, to make sense out of it. Mm. Um, we need each other to become holy. We need each other to become holy. Maybe that's evident for those who uh, know word and sacrament, but in the practical daily issues of life, it's not so evident. And people go running around fruitlessly looking for what will fill them. And we pray for them because where they're looking, okay. they're never going to find it. Okay. That's what I think the church has to do today. Well, when, when people Keep are... Keep people focused. Okay. Where you want, where you want... Well, I'll go back to the basic question. Yeah. Who is God? Who okay. am I? What okay. about the church? Okay. Or who is Jesus? Who am I? What about the church? Um, where are some false places do you think people sometimes fall into in terms of looking for happiness and satisfaction? Well, we have a sexualized world now. People fail to realize the, um, the sacredness of interrelationships, especially those nuptial or should be reserved for married people experiences. Um, and so that really makes it hard because 
as I understand it, for example, pornography, gets in your head and it twists your thinking and pretty soon you become less and less free to be who God wants you to be. Hmm. You're run by a bunch of things moving deep within you that you don't realize. I, I think any addictive behavior or substance is is just really bad, personally. I just think, um, you know, for example, alcoholism, drug use, and, uh, you know, what you just mentioned, and just basically, I don't know, maybe a gambling addiction or, you know. It's, I, really, it's really sad, isn't it, Tim? We look for God in places and never find him. Yeah. And people never get off of that horse. They're no. just on that horse forever. Well, I think these things take on a life of their own, Father. That's just my take on it, you know. Well, that, you're right. You know, maybe somebody starts happily. drinking because they have problems, but then I think then the drinking takes on a life of its own. You got a problem, take a drink. <laughs> yeah. You drink too much, now you got two problems. Right, yeah, I just got uh, <laughs> extra problems. So, um, okay, uh, positive questions. Um, what do you think it takes to be a saint? Or to be a better Christian? Good question. I I mean, is it in the practices? I mean, should people just be praying every morning? Should they be going to daily mass? Should they be saying a rosary? Should they be doing spiritual reading? Should they be doing acts of charity here and there? Uh, is there a program? I mean, sometimes people get offended at the idea of being on a program. But what do you think? I think um, we have to learn from our sisters and brothers who have gone before us. I had a wonderful book. I was just kind of distracted now because I don't know where it is. I have so many books. <laughs> I never know the one I'm looking for. I never know where it is even to start looking for it. You've got a nice library. Some of it's over there on yeah, the floor. Yeah, it's all over. Um, I think the answer is already given to us. All we knew, all we need to do is uh, read about our sisters and brothers okay. who went through more or less fantastic conversion experiences. Some great ones and some not so great. Uh, just kind of gradual and slowly. But we need to be open to um, God loves us so much, we just need to be open to that love and to know that most of the stuff that we do, that we base our life on, isn't going to help us. Isn't going to help us get in touch with God's love. Okay. I'd like to go to a monastery, I thought, but well, I've been here now. I, I worked till I was 75 and then I retired and lived here since then, and I often thought, well, I really screwed up. I should have gone to a monastery. I should have gone to Conception, Missouri, and spent uh, a month or six months just being a in-residence kind of guy uh -huh. who would be listening and talking and praying and getting close to God, getting close to other people, getting close to myself in a deeper way. I, sh I, sh I should have done that. I should have done that. Well, is it too late? Well, 
<laughs> you talking chronology? You talking yeah, about like something a, else? If you wanted to go to a monastery <laughs> now, can you go do that? Will oh, they let you? They'd be afraid that they'd come to my room someday and I'd be on the floor and they'd say, okay. whoa! Okay. <laughs> okay. I don't think that worked too well. Uh, okay. Can I I'm just... trying to make my house kind of like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. I like to make my house a monastery. I have the Blessed Sacrament in the yeah. chapel. Okay. And so I do my visits, say my rosary there. Okay. And uh, I guess I'm trying to cut the middle out of that. Cut out the middle, man. Go straight for, straight for Jesus. Okay. Um, what is the day-to-day -day like uh, life of being a priest actually like? I, I guess I'm, I wrote down a few things like daily mass, Sunday mass, Christmas and Easter, weddings, funerals, anointing of the sick. Like uh, just kind of the nuts and bolts of things. Like if you were a 30 or a 35 or 40-year-old priest, 50-year-old priest, you know, just what does your week look like? Um, i just tell you what my week is like now. Okay. Mondays. The, the, I live in Kasuth County, the southern tip of Kasuth County, and there are, there are needs here. And I realized after a while that Nobody had mass on Monday. It's like Monday, is, all the priests took off on Monday. So there wasn't any mass on Monday. So I began to offer mass at the Garrigan Chapel in Algona. So we went from a few people to, say, 35, 40 people come to Monday mass. Whoa, that's pretty good, Father. I was pleased with that number. Yeah, and they're good people. And then I went to uh, First Saturday Mass. So uh, I tried to meet what I perceived to be as a real need for people. People are hungry for the Eucharist. They, were, they long to hear the Word of God, and they enjoy a kind of praying together. We have Wendy, Wednesday Mass over here. We went to that, too, over in the... Knights of Columbus room here in the church. We have 8 o'clock in the morning Wednesday Mass, and then the ladies make coffee, and somebody makes cinnamon rolls, and somebody okay. brings fruit, and somebody brings something else. So that's really kind of a gathering point, too. I guess what I'm hearing you say is uh, maybe now, but maybe also 30 or 40 years ago, you just sort of look around and see what the needs are, and then you just try to address those needs. Yeah, it's more current than that. It was kind of like, what, what do I see right now uh -huh. that's going on? I see a real, um, a real emptiness, a longing desire in priests for, it's not a Catholic word, fellowship. We don't use fellowship very much okay. as Catholics. No, I, I think we might say community. I don't know what yeah, we say. Yeah, community would be good. Anyway, the priests used to have a strong community, but that's been... Uh, well, there's just so few priests. Yeah, that's been 
geographically by because of the numbers, but also because everybody's schedule, and also because of our phones, and also because of our TVs, and also because of whatever else keeps us occupied. Right. Not gainfully often, but occupied. Right. Doing things, and so uh, it's broken down. This kind of fellowship, yes. <laughs> community, yeah, this kind of community that we like to, that we think we like, we say we it's like ironic. To have. I guess I, well, I'm teaching an economics class, and they always talk about um, uh, what is it, uh, how things backfire, um, you know, unexpected consequences. Basically, you know, like uh, we introduce these technological devices because we think it's going to increase communication. And maybe it cuts back on communication. You two people are in the same room together. They're texting each other. Right. And right. They're, oh, my, what's that all about? The, uh, the original story that always stuck with me was this was way back in 2005. I was teaching a college class, and there was this student, and she was about 25 or so. And she was saying that she was with her boyfriend at the local bar, a place called Charlie Hooper's, and everybody had heard of it because it was just a few blocks away and she said that she and her boyfriend were just furiously texting each other while standing eight feet apart and since this was 2005 people said well why didn't you just walk over and speak with him or why didn't he just walk over and speak with you and then she just had this terrified look on her face and she just said that was too scary you know just too scary to do and I just everybody just thought that was crazy um, and I don't know, it happens quite a bit. I, I have these friends, who, I was with them last week, and uh, they're talking about their daughter's child in the fourth grade, who's really making trouble for them, for her parents, this fourth grade kid's making trouble for her parents because she wants a telephone okay. so she can text somebody. Okay. And her mother is reluctant to give in to that nagging. Right. Because she didn't want to lose her. Right. Yeah, okay, because people will fall into the phone maybe and, and not then come. She'll be gone. She'll be gone. Yeah. And who knows what you can get on your phone. Right. Well, I had, I had a parent, this was a long time ago, too. He was taking my college class. Um, he was maybe about my age, mid-30s, something like that, when this happened. And uh, he just casually mentioned to me that, well, he was ex-military. And I don't know if that's relevant or not, but he and his wife established a certain number of screen hours that their kids were allowed to have. And it could be any screen they wanted, a television or a phone or anything. Um, and I think it was something like six hours a week. And so at the beginning of the week, they would give their kids uh, something like six poker chips or maybe 12 poker chips for half an hour each. I don't remember if it was three hours that they received or if it was six hours that they received. But he said if they spent all the poker chips on the first day, that was fine. That's not a problem. You don't get any more, though. You don't get any more poker chips. And so, you know, if you get your poker chips on, say, Saturday, uh, then the next set of poker chips arrives the following Saturday. And so if you, you know, guard them very carefully and use them all up on Friday, that's fine. If you spend them all, you know, right after you get them, that's fine. But... 
that was just his limit and that at her limit and that just seemed like that kind of made sense to me that there needs to be a number attached to these type of things um it, sounds know, like not, a recipe for a lot of haggling to me because <laughs> they'd want them and then they'd want more and then you'd have to, you're just delaying the inevitable right hostile well and can i trade poker action. chips with my siblings can i volunteer to do your chores in exchange for poker chips you know can I haggle with mom and dad for more <laughs> chips? You're right. Look, there's no perfect system. No. You know. It just struck me as It's a good kind thing. of a unique approach to it. I don't know if it works. I applaud people who are trying to do that. I would like to say right now, and those kids are president right now, I'd like to tell you something very positive or or say those kids are in prison, Father. The system <laughs> didn't work. <laughs> I don't know how it played out. It just seemed like a good idea, but I don't know how it played out actually. Do you, do you mind if I ask you um, just a, a set of questions on the topic of uh, evangelization? Uh, here's kind of what I would like to know. I just, for the longest period of time, I've had people within the church saying, I, I would go to talks and people would say, well, we need to evangelize. And as far as I know, what that means is, is we're supposed to be reaching out to people who really don't go to church. Um, you know, we're supposed to be reaching out to, I don't know, the atheists or the agnostics or the fallen away Catholics or maybe the non-Catholics. Who knows? Maybe we're supposed to be talking to the Hindus or, you know, we're supposed to be talking to somebody other than the person in the pew next to us. Yeah. Uh, what, what does this evangelization mean to you? Um, should we be doing it? And if we should be doing it, how should we be doing it? Or is this Maybe we don't need to be doing it. What, what do you think? What does it mean? I think our Lord calls us all to intimate love and to um, join a group of like-minded people in being open to that call and to respond to it. So it's a call. Okay. And then second part of that is... Uh, Formation, people are called and formed. Uh, throughout our life, we receive different impulses, different opportunities, different personal, very personal thrusts toward achieving something uh, to become mature in our faith, for example. And then thirdly, there's always the... Uh, Go out to the others. Go out to the others. There's the outreach to other people. And uh, we live in such a personal, personalized world now that people hardly ever think of being called to be holy, of being formed by word and sacrament to enter more deeply into that relationship. And therefore, the third part, the part that you're talking about, uh -huh. uh, extending that to other people, is uh, terribly, terribly far away from people's priorities. It's really a curse of the modern age. Okay. It's really a curse of the modern age, but the Lord calls us. It's the good shepherd's thing again. It's the woman looking for the lost coin 
it's the good father and his prodigal sons. Two of them were prodigal. One stayed home, was prodigal. One left and was prodigal. That's for sure. So um, it's a challenge for us to come face to face with uh, the reality that we spend so much time, energy, and just blow up our lives doing stuff that doesn't matter at all. Instead, we should be listening, responding, praying with and praying for people who have the same problems that we do or had or will have. So the short answer is I think we have to reach out. To, it's part of our vocation as okay. a follower, as a member of the body of Christ, as a follower of Jesus. We have to do that, but un unhappily, we don't do it very well because we just got blown over, blown apart by the difficulties that surround us. I wrote a three-line poem once that expressed this, I think, pretty well. Uh, first line is, we are born broken. Okay. We are born broken. Second line is, our whole life is mending, fixing, hmm. forming. Okay. The last line is, and God is the glue. Okay. And <laughs> that's pretty good. That's a good point. Thank you. We are born broken. Our life is spent mending, and God is the glue. That's it. Okay. Well, okay, let, let me ask you. You put that on your coat of arms. I could, yes. <laughs> okay. Um, I'll do that. Okay, so I want to ask uh, maybe a case study type of example. Let's say that you live next door to a family. Uh, there's a husband and a wife, and they've got four little kids, and nobody's been to church for 20 years. Uh, and the kids are being raised without any sort of religion. Uh, and, you know, just you've talked to them here and there, and they seem like they're very nice people. Um, but, you know, like I said, they're being raised with zero religion of any kind. Uh, some people would say, well, maybe they don't need it. But you're thinking, we do need to evangelize. We need to talk with them. How do we do that? Uh, is there one particular member of the family that, that you would like to talk to? Uh, do we talk to all of them? How do we talk to them? I think short answer is... <laughs> short answer is I love them. I was, when I was doing seminary work in Belgium, this uh, couple had taken a tour of the chapel of the whole seminary, and then at the, we ended up in the chapel. And so we looked at the chapel and talked about it and all the rest. And then the parting shot was, the final question the lady had for me was, how's the discipline in this seminary? Okay, how's the discipline in this seminary? And the Holy Spirit anointed my tongue. I, I was blessed by a thing I never even remotely thought about previous to that moment. Uh -huh. And I said, without flinching, without hesitation, I said, oh, I think, I think the discipline in this seminary is very good. We love them into submission. <laughs> Interview over. 
<laughs> and I thought, yeah, that's what we do in this instance that you just listed for okay. me. We love them. Okay. We let them know we care about you. So, okay. We're interested in you. We want to, can I be of help? Okay. You ask them, like, Thank you for sharing that with me. How that kind of stuff. How'd the game go the other day? How's yeah. your job treating you? Um, how did you get those flowers to grow the way they're growing? Um, hey, what about your dog? Like, talk about all these type of things. And then what do you do? Just slip It's in. real life. You know, okay. you talk about real life okay. stuff. Do you bring up Jesus? Or do you just give them a glowing example? If they'd ask, sure. But that necessarily wouldn't be... Um, number one topic that I'd like to aim at them, so to speak. Okay. Maybe we bring it up after three months. When I was moved to Pocahontas, I was there for 14 years. And along with Pocahontas, I got Rolf, St. Margaret's Parish in Rolf. Okay. So I went out to visit the priest who was going to retire from there and go to another place. And uh, after about a day or two of visiting and talking and exchanging, I asked him, said, what? I said, Father, what are the people in Rolf like? Okay. And he looked at me, matter-of-factly, without emotion. He says, oh, they're just people. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I thought, oh, what wisdom is there there? Yeah. Oh, they're just people. Well, that reminds me of an old story I heard. It was very similar. Somebody uh, said that uh, this, this guy lived in this house, and he had two neighbors move in simultaneously, and uh, one to his left, one to his right. And one of them said, what are the people in this town like? And uh, the guy who'd been there a while said, well, what were the people in the town like that you came from? And the guy said, well, they were great. You know, everybody was like open and friendly and easy to get along with. And then the guy said, well, that's what the people are like here. Then the next day, the other neighbor asked him, well, what are the people in this town like? And he said, well, what were the people in the town like where you came from? And uh, the guy said, well, they were really terrible. They were manipulative and conniving and just out for themselves and stuck on themselves. And uh, the guy had been there for a while said, well, that's what they're like here. Exactly. You know, so I, I exactly. guess kind of like the confirmation bias fallacy that you're going to find what you were looking for in the first place. Um, that's what we're going to end up seeing. Was it so, Snoopy? I don't know. Was it Snoopy I... that said, we have met the enemy and <laughs> there's us? Uh, Pogo? Oh, Pogo. Pogo. Yeah. Yeah, I think Pogo. We've met the enemy and he is us. Yeah. yeah. That's very Jungian of you, Father. That's like Carl Jung, you know, the psychologist. You know, um, the thing that irritates you the most about the other person is probably some trait that you have yourself. Exactly. So We project that, don't we? Yeah. Okay. Um, okay, so I, I think maybe I just have one or two more questions. Uh, yeah, I'm about out of gas here. About out of gas. Okay, so is there anything we didn't talk about that you would like to talk about? Well, I would, as I said, there's a terrible diminishment of priests. Not that the church is the, the church is the priest. The priests are the church. But uh, we need a model. We need some kind of new model to face 
the reality that we're living in now. And unhappily, I don't think we're searching very thoroughly, very fruitfully at least, about what that model is. But somehow, you know, about 99%, 95% or more of the Catholic people are what we call laity. Mm -hmm. And maybe 1% or 2% are clergy. The job of the clergy is to uh, minister to the church. And the job of the laity is to minister to each other and to bring in more people. Okay. To build up the church. Okay. And we've lost that sense. I think people are so compartmentalized in their private life, in their personal lives, in their workplace. Um, they failed in their uh, work of bringing Christ into the world. Mm. We've, we've, and the, for the most part, I think clergy have uh, ministered to the people who are kind of looking in rather than looking out and bringing more people into the share, the fruit of the table. Okay. I'm, I'm hearing you say, I just want to make sure I understand that we really just kind of need to get back to what people's primary responsibilities are. Clergy needs to get back to their primary responsibilities, and laity needs to get back to theirs. And if we did, then the church would probably thrive. Um, and I'm also kind of hearing that we need to be in search of a model that works, you know, for the situation that we're actually in. Yeah, I go back to Carl Rogers. It's in there already. Okay. God's love for us is within us. Uh -huh. God's call to us is within us. We're being formed by that love, and mm -hmm. now we're being missioned to bring that love into the world. It's okay. in us already. What we need to do is stop, back off, be more introspective, and that's really hard in our crazy world. Yes. We have to stop, back off, reflect. Theological reflection is the key. We don't do it. It's like that remote control on the TV. We just keep flipping channels instead of looking at one and then reflecting on what we okay. saw. We, uh, it's a bad mistake. We, uh, we're just overwhelmed with so much data, so much information. Too we much. Yeah, exactly. We, we, we don't exactly. pause and do something with it. Too much. And most of it is pointless, fruitless. Okay, so what's your optimistic note for, for the future? Maybe that's my last question. Like, what, what, I don't even know what my last question is. Lord love is in the submission. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's the proof. We have the note. faith. Isn't that Father um, Graving always said that? Uh huh. He, he was uh, retired out of West Bend. And I was a new guy there, living in the rectory, and then once in a while we'd have dinner together, and we'd talk, invariably we'd talk about somebody who was having problems. Okay. Wife was sick, or kids were misbehaving or something. 
And then Louis Graven, Father Graven, said, Ooh, you'll be okay. He's got the faith. <laughs> and I said, Oh, yeah, that's right. He's got the faith. He's a wonderful mentor, that Father Graven. Oh, he's got the faith. So I hope we have faith too. Father Murrow. This was really fun, and I think that's the perfect note to end on. Fun! It wasn't fun. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you.